Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Had we uh, perhaps really put our foot down on that and released, say, an album a month, then we could, yeah, arguably uh, sort of live off the proceeds of that. Welcome to Text Message. I'm Nate Langson, and this week we're doing another special, a focus on the state of podcasting. And we're also going to be talking about the financial side of podcasting, specifically making money from podcasting. We've talked in the past about ways that some people like to pay for podcasts, but that's from the listener's perspective. This week we're going to talk about it from the podcaster's perspective, from potentially an advertiser's perspective. What are the best ways of making money from podcasting? How have people done it in the past successfully? And joining me to talk about this fascinating, deep, rich, and exciting topic is veteran podcaster Mr. Ollie Mann. Hello, Ollie. I like veteran podcaster. It suggests that I'm just a, a hop, skip, and a jump away from a Lifetime Achievement Award. Let's start by just getting a bit of background out of the way about what makes you a veteran podcaster. Tell me about the... There are four podcasts I think you do at the moment. Um, let's talk about all four of them. Uh, well, I mean, if you look at the metrics, then the vast majority of people listening to this will only know me if they know me at all from from Answer Me This, uh, which is a comedy show which I do with my friend Helen Zaltzman. Uh, we record it in her flat in South London, and it's now in its 10th year. Um, and that by far is the biggest show that I do in, in terms of audience numbers. Uh, but recently, I've launched my own show, uh, The Modern Man. It's a pun on my name, uh, but also an indication of the kind of content we discuss. It's, it's supposed to be uh, a sort of new spin on, on men's magazine type topics. So we talk about sex, trends, culture, food. Um, and that's been going for about uh, six months now. Um, and then I present Tech Weekly for The Guardian, which I'm sure none of your listeners ever have need to listen to because all of their tech needs are satisfied here. Uh, and then I also present a show called The Media Podcast, which is kind of a niche, a deliberately niche discussion show for people in the media industry, people who work in print, tele, digital. Um, and it has its origins as the Guardian's Media Talk podcast. The Guardian pulled the plug and we decided to run it as an independent production. So those are the four shows that I do at the moment. Well, let's start then at the beginning. As you say, answer me this. It has been around for a long time. It is very, very popular. And you've always taken a very liberal approach to uh, monetizing that show from my perspective in that you've done hundreds of episodes and yet they've all been free and they always have been free. But you periodically release what are ostensibly audiobooks. It's it's a podcast you pay for. You release them through iTunes as an album. I seem to remember they often chart very highly as albums in their own right, um, but they do cost money. So on, from that side of things, how has that worked for you? Is that is that a model that is suitable to be continued down the line? Yeah, that, I mean, that's worked really well. And uh, yeah, I mean, you, you call it liberal, I'd probably call it lazy, really. <laughs> I mean, if we were a bit more proactive, um, and a bit more businesslike, actually, about monetizing the show, then we probably would have three or four years ago realized that we'd stumbled into uh, with a a kind of combination of 
savviness and intuition, but also just literally stumbled into it because we were fumbling around trying to find a revenue stream. Stumbled into a method that does work for us, which, as you say, is give away hundreds of hours, make people really like our shtick, and then say, oh, we've got this product, which is more of that. Pay us some money. Um, And, yeah, I mean, had we uh, perhaps really put our foot down on that and released say an album a month then we could yeah arguably uh, sort of live off the proceeds of that we haven't done that because we put as much work into making the free content as we do the paid for content and vice versa uh, when we're making the paid for content it can't just be something we toss off because people have paid for it equally when we're making the free content that can't just be something we've tossed off because then there's no audience to then find the, the paid for stuff so we put lots of work into everything we've ever done um there's a lot of editing there's a lot of thinking even though it is essentially what sounds like a hopefully spontaneous fun comedy show we put a lot of thought into it and yeah it's a lot of work basically so we've we've i think we've released five albums now and most of those have been over the last i I think two to three years haven't they yeah i think the first one well the first one was i know when it was because it was it's called jubilee and it was about the diamond jubilee so it was in 2012 was the first one we did okay so four four years i mean you were making them for six years up until that point then for for basically for nothing between the five or six years but you managed to monetize a back catalog in a way that, you know, for me and for other podcasters who are generally sticking to a, a very loose news cycle, it's very, very difficult to do. How critical is the back catalog for you that you charge through your own shop per episode or per collection of episodes versus the albums? Like if you were just picking one or the other, which which is the successful way to do that? Do you know, I, again, if we were more professional, I'd have all the metrics. I know the answer to that. I don't know. I don't know whether we make more money from the albums or whether we make more money from selling our back catalogue. But my- The fact that, that you don't know that suggests that it probably isn't a radical difference between the two. Yeah, I think that's probably fair, but it, it really does underline that our motivation has never been financial. Um, but we have, you know, managed to find a few ways to, to get a bit of, of money for what we do. And I really would underline that. You would never put in the 10 years of work that we put in to get the money that we've got out of it um because if you put in that much work you could probably build yourself a massive corporation <laughs> in the time that it's taken us to make some money from podcasting um but what i would say is that whereas i think the album appeals to a slightly casual listener and by casual in in our terms i mean someone who has perhaps listened to a hundred episodes the ones that are available for free but would never listen to the ones that are five or ten years old and pay for them because that seemed like a nerdy thing that that kind of listener who likes our stuff will hear us talk about a new album and, and think, oh, it's only a couple of quid, I'll buy it. Whereas the back catalogue stuff, that really, it's kind of, I see that as uh, sort of like people who like early Dylan. Do you know what I mean? It's like, oh, I'm a completist. I want the bootleg stuff. You know, I want the stuff that wasn't very good. I want the stuff that had the bad jokes in it. I, it's a nerdy thing. And therefore, I think the interesting metric to look at is not how many have we sold, but actually how many have we sold to the same people? By which I mean, if you're someone who is prepared, generally speaking, to spend 79 pence an episode on our first 10 episodes, you tend to go on and buy all 200 of them. So we actually get a lot of revenue from that fairly niche part of our audience. Let's talk a little bit about then one of the the more recent shows, The Modern Man. Um, To me, it's... It's the it's the only man answer to the podcast GQ doesn't make to a certain extent. Um, when you were planning that show, what was motivating you 
I'm assuming money wasn't the motivating factor as much because it sounds like you don't care that much about money based on at least your answers today. Um, but 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 what are the motivational factors there? You know, and and when you go into it, do you go into making a podcast like that thinking we'll make something where there is value in the back catalogue being a way to sell sporadic paid for specials, if you like? So actually, my motivation for the modern man was simply that even though I've been podcasting for nearly 10 years, um, I don't oddly have my own show in the sense of a show with my name in the title and a show that reflects my personality as it is now. And when I started doing Answer Me This with Helen, I was 24. I'm now nearly 35. Um, And I just sort of felt like there needs to be a show that reflects my style now because the thing about answer me this is it's great and i love it and i love doing it and i it's very easy like meeting any old friend it's really easy to fall into the banter that i have with helen it's exactly like when we met at university when we were 18 we're not putting it on but it is like when you meet your friends down the pub that you knew when you were 18 a slight contrivance of my actual personality you know that it's it's necessary for the format of answer me this that uh i play a bit dumb in in some of the conversations because that's how the format works it's necessary that um we are silly about serious things and we're kind of serious about silly things because that's the sort of general wheelhouse of sort of sixth form humor that we come from um and the truth is now i'm 35 and i've been a radio presenter on lbc and i've hosted uh, live election coverage and i've hosted uh, radio programs when there's been a terrorist incident and all the rest of it i also have a part of me that wants to be serious about serious things and wants to have fun about funny things and wants to talk in more depth than we ever could on answer me this about things for example in the show we do on the modern man a, a sex q a uh, with a, a sex spurt as she calls herself alex fox um which is essentially not a million miles away from the kind of format of answer me this a listener sends us a question we answer it but the difference is although there are lots of naughty jokes in there and we're a bit cheeky uh, we will talk seriously for five or six minutes about premature ejaculation or circumcision or whatever it is in a way that we just can't do on answer me this because that's not the format so genuinely my main sort of primary motivating factor was i want to do a show that reflects who i am now and the kind of listener that i am now but i was also aware that actually if you're targeting a podcast at tech savvy men in their 30s that's quite a lucrative niche i mean that is basically who listens to podcasts Um, so um, I was also careful to create a show with Matt Hill the producer Uh, we went for a long walk one day in the countryside and came up with the whole format in that two hour period Uh, create a show that had ad breaks in it so unlike on Answer Me This where we very carefully sort of dipped our toe in monetization and telling the audience about sponsors and all the rest of it right from the beginning with The Modern Man there's, there's a format whereby after 10 minutes there's an ad break effectively and after 25 minutes after that there's another ad break and there's an opportunity at the end to thank the people that have donated to the show uh we have uh, itunes ambassadors which is a concept i've nicked uh, completely from you um and i've stolen all kinds of things that i like from other podcasts so um whilst it's true that my motivation was i want to do a show that reflects my personality that's an outlet for me to explore subjects i'm interested in get out on the road meet people that i find interesting um i was also aware that i'd be mad not to build into that the opportunity to to create partnerships with with brands let's put ourselves in the in the ears of somebody who has not heard the modern man before what did you decide was the right way to incorporate 
adverts and and how do you get them do you do you work with a third party do you uh go down to the pub and say i've got a podcast who wants to give me 10 pounds to be on my podcast like how are you doing that and 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 what methods have worked for you uh thus far well, I, what I found works from Answer Me This and the other shows that I've done is kind of everything. Like, all of the above, do all of it. Um, because, you know, one month, one of the revenue streams really comes through, like when we release an album, and another month it'll be something completely different, like it's Christmas time, so people are clicking your Amazon affiliate link. So I really think, you know, it, it, it's, the, it's the internet in the same spirit by which you try not to get too proprietorial about your content and say, oh, I don't want you listening to it on here. Ultimately, every listener's a listener. Um, in the same way, I kind of feel like every revenue stream's a revenue stream. Like, don't say no to any of it. Um, so long as it doesn't compromise the ethics of what you're doing. Um, and so uh, the answer to your question is, um, there are about three different ways that right from the beginning we tried to monetize Modern Man and, and set in principle. One is we're hosted by Acast, uh, which you're hosted by two, uh, although in the case of this show you have essentially not turned on any of the advertising features. But were you to turn them on, uh, Acast is a, a Swedish startup which offers the ability for podcasters to dynamically insert advertising into their shows, uh, which is, is basically what happens on YouTube, what we're all used to from YouTube you know before you watch a program there's that annoying pre-roll and that annoying pre-roll ad isn't the same annoying pre-roll ad every time is it it's one that's relevant at that time because sony or htc or netflix or whoever it is are paying for that particular advertising spot so acast offer the opportunity to insert pre-roll across your entire back catalog so you can monetize the shows that are old as well as the shows that are new and of course you know the junk listeners listen to everything and for, for the perspective of somebody who who isn't familiar with that are they selling the ads for you or are you and are you do you approve them i mean could you get a show uh about you know promoting i, I don't know uh condoms or sanitary products that may but actually for your for that show may actually be quite fitting whereas for text message if i said and now here's a word from jurex um it would it would clash a bit i mean how much control do you have and how much do you want yeah, they, they give you as much as you want or as little as you want. So just as you have chosen not to send the ads on, we, we have an arrangement whereby essentially we've said, as you may have told, guessed from the way I was discussing pre-roll a moment ago, we don't want pre-roll. I find it intensely irritating. Um, it is the easiest way to monetize a podcast at the moment, and I've chosen to avoid it, which is slightly sort of reckless of me. Um, I don't think it is reckless because unlike many other media where you preview and you may have thumbnails or you may have a chorus that the iTunes in, in, in the case of music will jump to to make sure you're hearing the bit most likely to sell that product to you. With a podcast you only ever hear it from the very very first second which is one of the reasons why A, I also don't want pre-roll and also B, why I tune this show to start immediately with content that may engage a listener and not waste time faffing around asking how you are i know how you are i've just eaten a scone with you upstairs and no one cares about that conversation with us so i think you're right i think that pre-roll can be destructive in that in that sense yeah uh, i mean i actually interestingly when it comes to what we do do at the top of the show it slightly goes against what you were just saying but i'll part that thought and i'll get back to that in a second uh, but yeah pre-roll that is advertising i'm not saying we won't ever do it but i'm saying if we do do it i want to do it for money that actually funds my lifestyle not just you know <laughs> a couple of hundred quid um so at the moment no pre-roll um what we do is we insert a mid-roll they call it and we either put that after the first section of the show, which is a discussion about trends with Ollie Peart called The Zeitgeist, 
or we put it before the last section of the show, which is a section called the Foxhole with Alex Fox, which is the sex section. And we can choose on a weekly basis where we put that mid-roll. Acast dynamically insert into that an ad that they run past us. It's either an ad that um, uh, we've said, yes, we don't mind being there because it's something that's relatively of interest to our listeners, or it's actually a sponsored read read by me, but the sponsors only bought a campaign for a couple of weeks. Um, So that's one uh, monetizing method. we could turn on post-troll, we could turn on a second ad, we've chosen not to do any of that. We only have one thing inserted by them that they're selling as a sort of advertising house. Then I tend to try and sell the other spot in the show. Um, as I say, there's two spots, really. Um, and I try and fill personally the other one by reaching out to people that I know, uh, people that I've met. Uh, and of course, what happens when you start voicing ads in your own voice and you do them well, hopefully, is that listeners actually think, oh, that was that was a really good spot. I'm engaged with that company. And there's research from uh, the US, I think it's from Gimlet Media, uh, which is, you know, do sort of, I think it's three or four now, uh, really successful Polish podcast, but have somehow managed to build a multi-million dollar empire on this, um, partly because they're American. Uh, but anyway, they uh, have done some research which showed that something like 60% of their listeners at some point have bought a, a product that a sponsor has endorsed, uh, that a host has endorsed. Um, and I think, that you know, the, the ads work. So uh, people get in touch with me and say, hey, I really like the ad you did for X. Can you shift my product Y? But is that is that them paying for an advert or is it actually paying for an endorsement? I mean, does that ever... I mean, from a journalist perspective, I, I wouldn't want to do that because it would make me cringe. But from your perspective, it sounds like you're more comfortable with doing that. Yeah, I'm, I'm completely comfortable with doing it. I, I think people are savvy enough to know that if content is free, then it has to be paid for somehow. Um, and, you know, I'm an independent podcaster. That's what I do. I, I don't have a radio job anymore. So literally the only way I'm making money at the moment, apart from one column I have for a magazine, uh, is sheerly through my work in podcasting. So, you know, if you like the show and you like me, then you've got to fund it. And there's two ways of funding it. One is to listen to an ad and the other is to give me some money. Uh, and indeed, give me some money is the other thing that we do in the show. Um, so if there, if there hasn't been an ad sold in that second slot, I'll insert a bit in my voice essentially asking for money Uh, or if we have then at the end I'll do a little bit about asking for money and what we do with that um, which is a technique that I sort of adapted from the podcaster Stuart Goldsmith he does a great thing on the comedian's comedian where he almost uses sort of hypnotism to suggest uh, in your brain that you should give him money he's a very experienced street performer uh, before he was a stand-up so he'll say things like next time you look at your keyboard and you see the shift key remember that you haven't given any money to me uh, which is really really effective uh, so I sort of adapted that and I came up with the concept of beer money uh, I, I found an article from the good pub guide in 2013 which said the average cost of a pint of beer in Britain is £3.31 uh, which happens to work out to $5 US almost exactly which is about the right kind of money you want to ask for as a subscription right so rather than saying give me $5 a month which seems quite grabby uh, I say just buy me a beer if you like the show buy me a beer if you really like the show buy me two buy me three Uh, and people go to our website and they click beer money uh, and they buy us a beer Um, and it just means it's a sort of nice way really to thread into the show it turns me begging for money into a bit of content Um, and that's the trick I think with all promotional stuff with all partnerships with all uh, sponsoring with all back catalogue sales and this is something I've learned from Answer Me This if you make it part of the show people actually actively enjoy it I mean it seems hard to believe because in conventional advertising all advertising is so irritating you want to die but actually on podcast you can make it entertaining I mean I, I, I know someone who's a TV producer who says to me that his favourite bit of Answer Me This is our Squarespace song 
um, that really is possible if, if, if you find partners who are willing to let you go with it. It's interesting that you never, or at least haven't publicly, experimented with something along the lines of Patreon, which is something that in, in the previous uh, State of Podcasting episode I did with Tom Merritt of DTNS in the US, we, we talked a lot about the idea of Patreon and, and, and regular crowdfunding as a way of funding podcasts. So I wonder how much of your previous experience making money from podcasts through things like Back Catalog and, as you say, more personality-driven pleas for, for money has influenced your unwillingness or, or, or lack of desire to explore something like Patreon? Um, that's more of a statement than a question, but I suppose I'm getting around to the way of asking, would you still use something like Patreon? Like, could that complement what you're already doing in the ways you've, uh, you've just described? So I think yes and no is the answer to that question. Uh, yes, we would consider using something like Patreon. We haven't actually discounted it, we just never got around to it. Um, but no, I think if we did that, there's a limit to how many times you can ask for money and how many different ways you can ask for money. Uh, I would probably dump the beer money thing if I was also asking people to support us through a, a crowdfunding website. Unless you could say support us on Patreon to the tune of what it costs to buy a beer. Yeah, I mean, the truth is um, I looked at all the different um, commission that these companies get and I worked out that I could save more money for making episodes of the show, which is ultimately what I want to do. I mean, genuinely, what I'm spending the money in on is going out and meeting people and making the show. Uh, if I essentially got people to give me the money directly rather than going through an American corporation. So I just thought, well, I'll do it myself. Without asking you to name names, what is a bad way of monetizing a podcast? Hmm. Or do you ever hear examples and think, man, I would never do that. Yes, all the time. Um, and actually, um, some of them are from really reputable broadcasting organisations. Very often, it seems to me, um, when the people making the podcast themselves don't actually have the hunger to monetize it. In other words, when they're being paid by someone else to make the show anyway, and someone else in a business department has managed to shove an ad into the mix you can actually hear the boredom in their voices when they're telling you about the product. And at that point, it becomes counterproductive, um, which I just find very interesting because I think the reticence that big brands have about advertising on Answer Me This, for example, even though we have uh, about 130,000 listeners, which is competitive with you know the amount of viewers that some shows get on ITV2 or on E4 or something. The reason that Pepsi will advertise on E4 but they won't advertise on Answer Me This is they'll think oh, but you're going to be irreverent, oh, but it seems a bit small scale, oh, but, you know, you swear or you take the piss out of our product. It's like, yeah, that's what makes it a good fit, is if it looks like the company that's given you the money gets it and they trust you, like the listeners trust you as their friend to tell you about a genuinely cool thing or, in our case, be slightly anarchic around it, um, that makes the product look cool. And equally... Uh, you know, if you have a product made by a podcast, rather made by a big news organisation, for example, and they, in the most bored way possible, uh, tell you about some website that's bought some pre-roll, it has the opposite effect. It makes you think, "God, this is this is this is taking a minute out of my life listening to this." <laughs>
So on, on the one hand, we've got Answer Me This, which is um, it's, it's building that great rapport with an audience, getting a large audience where your longest and most dedicated fans are going to take an interest in exploring your back catalogue and also your specials that you'll put out. On The Modern Man, you can talk about things about, you know, if you like the show, buy me a pint, there's beer money. But you'll also say, look, we can talk about products or services or companies in a, in a fun, engaging, irreverent way. And therefore, it's in your interest to go out and seek the kind of products that you'd want to promote, essentially, and get them to give you money in order to do that. That's two of your shows. What about the other two? Have you had to, uh, I hate this word, commercialize any of those? Would you? If so, how? Etc. 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 Okay, so Tech Weekly is out of my hands because it's made by the Guardian. They hire me as a presenter. I turn up. It's professionally produced. Um, I wasn't thinking of the Guardian when I talked about uh, news organisations that do boring ads, but I, I think there is an argument that the Guardian, you know, do fall slightly into that category um, and I mean no, no disrespect to my paymasters but sometimes I kind of think oh why are you so nervous about having me as the presenter just say there's this product and the answer to that of course is they're the guardian and they feel like they need to have editorial independence they can't compromise their journalism they need to be seen not to be chasing dollars but to be uh, providing great content but of course as we all know the guardian is horrendously losing money so um <laughs> again you know uh fine it's, it's fun to be on that ship but i mean you know I, it's not one that i'd want to steer um and then with regard to um uh, the media podcast uh the truth is uh, all three of us that make that show producer matt the executive producer pete and and myself um have tried from the beginning to make it professionally by which we mean we've always tried to pay ourselves and it's a sort of chicken and egg thing we know that if the show got bigger because it's a niche show if the show got bigger then there's obviously a sponsor that would want to come on board but the way to make the show bigger is to release it weekly and to keep the consistency up but if you do that then you can't get paid and to be honest i to be brutally honest i certainly there were times where I was doing enough of the work that I'd have happily done it for no money uh, but Matt and Pete wouldn't and you know they wanted fair enough uh, to get paid for the work they're doing but it does mean that essentially we've we've gone fortnightly it's it's a bit more of a slog to try and find a sponsor to get on board but the good news is that I think we've just we've just found one Um, so there is a sponsor there but um, we've done everything we can to make it affordable to make. So, for example, uh, we record at the Hospital Club in London, who give us their facilities because we say at the beginning of each episode, we're at the Hospital Club, which means uh, that we have actually a lively sort of atmospheric um, acoustic to the show. You can hear people gossiping in the background in a bar. You feel like you're privy to a behind-the-scenes media conversation. We are in the ultimate kind of wanky media club. Um, And yet, actually... Uh, really that was us cheaping out on hiring a studio people feel that because the technology exists for them to do whatever the hell they want then they should and of course um, sometimes there are things about conventional radio broadcasting that exist for a reason because they work like the Ofcom guidelines on taste and decency and too often I think the trap people fall into is they disregard a lot of these sort of trends that have been built up over decades in the way that decent radio is produced and part of that I think is delivering consistency Um, Helen and I for a time were on Steve Wright in the afternoon the perennial radio to daytime tv uh, daytime radio show uh, for uh, for about five years Um, we'd be on once a month talking about the internet Uh, and I learned quite a lot from watching Steve Wright you know, I mean, yes, that's a pretty naff show that in many ways is essentially the, the same radio show that he's been making for 25 years. Why is he still there? 
Why is it still massive? Well, the answer is because everyone who works in every branch of quick fit up and down the country, everyone who works in every pub, everyone who gets in their car to pick up their kids knows that at uh, three o'clock is the oldies and at 3.45 is the factoids and Sally Traffic's there and the music goes da 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 and they know all that because he's done it every day for 25 years and it sticks with people and they can set their watch by it and there's something warm and comforting about company from the radio like that that I don't see why, just because you're getting audio on demand, you shouldn't provide for people as well. And I think, you know, one of the problems with the media podcast, I don't want to talk about it in that pejorative way, because I actually, of everything I do, I love doing it the most, because, as you can hear, I'm very enthusiastic talking about the media. But one of the problems with that is it hasn't been sticky enough because we haven't been consistent, because we've been putting it out fortnightly or every three weeks, for all the reasons I talked about before. So I do think, like, deliver a a piece of content, deliver it well, deliver it consistently, um, is the best way to, to do it. Well, we've we've sort of covered all of your all of your shows and all of your ways of um, of monetizing or, or choosing not to monetize. But I'm just curious, who's doing podcasting really well in general, and should podcasters be helping each other out more? Given that word of mouth so commonly helps spread the the, the podcast gospel. Yeah, I, I'm really torn on that last point. Should podcasters be helping each other out more? Because on the one hand, I think what better way. Uh, to reach a new audience than to reach an audience who you know are already listening to a podcast. Um, so, you know, the reason I'm here talking to you, although I know you and it's fun to talk about podcasts with you, um, is I'm thinking, you know, some of your audience might hopefully go and check out Modern Man. Modern Man, M-A-N-N.co.uk um, or iTunes.com slash man. Uh, that's why I'm here and I know that that will work because, you know, we're both podcasters and we have a podcast audience. Uh, on the other hand, I know from uh, listener feedback to The Modern Man that one of the things that my listeners really like about the show being a magazine show is that I've gone and found original stories. We're not doing PR bullshit and I'm not interviewing comedians or celebrities. I mean, as it just so happens, the particular week that this episode comes out uh, is the, the one exception to that, which is um, uh, two friends of mine, Stuart Goldsmith, who I actually mentioned before, and Tom Price, the stand-up comedian, both became dads at the same time as me in January this year. So in series one, we did an episode called How to Be a Dad Part One, where we all talked about our apprehension about becoming fathers. Uh, and actually this week sees the release of, of How to Be a Dad Part Two, where we talk about how the first three months has gone. Uh, so that is sort of, I suppose, a bit of a podcaster on podcaster quasi-celebrity interview. But generally um i want to talk to people who have really experienced stuff and done things and aren't just in the tiny world of podcasting and media um so i'm slightly resistant to it from a content point of view but it definitely works yeah to, to build up audiences as does interviewing celebrities i mean i i think it's a really lazy format you know i i would listen to richard herring and adam buxton without them talking to a famous person because i think they're clever and talented and i think it, it can be just a bit like oh you're doing another celebrity interview show Oliman, um, let everybody know, please, where they should find you and find your work. Oh, it's very, very easy because I've bought all the URLs. So it's ollyman.com, it's twitter.com slash ollyman, it's facebook.com slash ollyman. Very, very simple. O-L-L-Y-M-A-N-N. Uh, Answer Me This is very easily Googleable. Um, and uh, Modern Man is at itunes.com slash M-A-N-N. Ollyman, thank you so much. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.